It is sure good to be here with you again. Uh, we have been friends for many years, and you have loved Karen and me very well, and we are so grateful for you. And today we are going to be walking through the book of Philippians together. Will not be a full exposition of the book, but we will cover many of the main points of that beautiful letter. And it's in the letter to the church at Philippi that Paul says to them and to you and me, to, we are called to live a life worthy of the gospel. One of God's great gifts to you and me in that call is that he's given us a gospel worthy of investing our lives in. So turn with me to the book of Philippians, and we're going to begin right in the first chapter. And uh, Philippians 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul begins this letter, his desire is to bring to his beloved brothers and sisters those things that come only from the heart of our God, his grace and his peace. Let me give you a little background to what we are reading here, and you can study this later in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Barnabas had concluded their first missionary journey. And Paul had said to Barnabas, let's go back and see how the brothers and sisters are doing in the churches where we've been. Well, you probably know that there was a separation between Paul and Barnabas, so Paul leaves on his second missionary journey with Timothy and with Silas. And uh, they were going through Galatia, which is modern Turkey, and uh, Paul received a vision of a man from Macedonia. Now, that's modern Greece. And in that vision, the man says, come over here and help us. So Paul concluded that God was leading them to go to Macedonia. Philippi is a major city in Macedonia. It's a Roman colony, a very major city. So when they arrived in Philippi, Paul and his team were looking for a quiet place to pray. They went down to the river, and there they met this woman, Lydia, and we'll remember her as that seller of purple goods. And as Paul shared the gospel with her, there's just a wonderful statement about how salvation happens, which we know is all of God. God opened Lydia's heart to understand Paul's message. Well, as Paul continued to preach, there was a great response to the gospel. There was some spiritual conflict. There's a riot. He ends up in prison. And it was in prison that night when we remember Paul and Silas singing hymns at midnight. And uh, then there's a great earthquake. All the prisoners are released. And the jailer is about to kill himself because, of course, he's responsible for the prisoners. And Paul stops it. No, no, we're all here. Don't do that. And Paul shared the gospel with this jailer, and he and his family were saved. So the new birth of Lydia and the Philippian jailer, the birth of this church in Philippi, all because of our great sovereign God and his mercy and his grace, to those who put their faith in him. So, 
Live a life worthy of this gospel, he says to this church he loves with all of his heart. So we're going to be talking a lot about the gospel today. What is the gospel? Well, maybe one of the first verses you ever learned was John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that all who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. That is the gospel. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, and he says, I declare unto you the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised again. That is the gospel that we are talking about, the gospel that Paul is reminding this church of and to lay down their lives for. Well, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's one of the verses that uh, we treasure from this letter. And for those of us especially who have struggled in our walk with the Lord, maybe even fallen on our faces in places where we thought we never would again, to be reminded that God is going to finish what he began in us. What an encouragement to our hearts. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So the church at Philippi was a strong partner with the Apostle Paul in his ministry of the gospel. We know that they supported him financially again and again. And in fact, toward the end of this letter, he mentions that this was the only church supporting him at this time. And, uh, but they not only supported him financially, the partnership was bigger than that. They partnered with him also in his sufferings. You know Paul's in a Roman jail as he writes this letter. And so they're partnering with him in his suffering and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This was a strong, deep, long-term partnership. Partnerships in the gospel enable ministry to be far more effective than anyone could ever do it on their own. Any organization, any church, any mission. Everywhere we work in the world, and we are training pastors on every populated continent in the world today, everywhere we work, we're in partnership with other missions, with churches. And uh, as we contribute with each other what God has given to us, ministry flourishes. Partnerships are wonderful. One of our strongest partners is in a church in the city of Toowoomba, uh, Australia. And one of the fun things about traveling to Australia is dealing with all the aboriginal names. But a number of years ago, I was invited to this church to teach a family conference. And I, it was in a series of uh, meetings throughout that part of Australia. 
And uh, so we got to this town of Toowoomba, and our, our meetings were on Tuesday, uh, Monday and Tuesday, or Tuesday and Wednesday in the middle of the week. And I thought, you know, <laughs> who's going to come out to evenings? Well, the church was full. And at the same time, our ministry in Indonesia was beginning, and it was really growing strong. Our team in Indonesia was praying for the funds to begin a second team, because our coworkers in Indonesia said if we had another team, we could put these pastor trainers in every province in Indonesia. And so I, I told them before that trip, uh, the offerings that we receive on this trip to Australia, we're going to put toward that second team. So we have some ministry partners in Australia, and they knew what our goals were and what we were praying for. And the wife said to me as we got, why don't you just tell them how much you need for that second team? And so at the end of that first evening, I said, um, we're praying that God will give us $20,000 to begin this second team of pastor trainers in Indonesia. And so they allowed us to put out a basket in the back of the room and ask people to pray. And at the end of the second night, the pastor and the head elder came to me with the offering. And they said, we're also going to give you that $20,000 you need for that second team in Indonesia. Well, I was gobsmacked, you know, to use that wonderful Aussie phrase. And I immediately wrote to our team in Indonesia to tell them the good news. What I didn't know is that they had been saving money for a new building. In fact, they had several buildings. It was a hodgepodge of old, broken-down facilities that are put together. And they were praying that they could buy a piece of land somewhere else in Toowoomba and... Uh, build a new church building. And they said, let's put that off and let's, let's give the money to this team. Well, it was about six months later. Pastor's in his office and knock on his door. It's a builder. And he says, I want to buy your church. Well, he wasn't, of course, interested in those old broken down buildings. What he wanted was the land. He wanted to build a shopping center. He said, if you'll give us this land, we'll buy land for you in another place in town and give you money toward that building. And so now they have the most beautiful facility, functional, just so good for the work of the church. And uh, they have partnered with us not only in Indonesia, but in Russia, in Turkey. Pastors traveled with us again and again. But we love those folks, and that's what happens in partnerships. And when Paul talks about this partnership, you, you see those words, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I'm going to encourage you to get a book on the left side of the table that has the message of this day. It's a little different form than I'll be presenting it, but... There's a chapter on the role of affections in the gospel. This is so significant to the Apostle Paul. When you read Philippians, notice how he talks about his ministry team, how he brags about his co-workers. We will spend a lot of time talking about how our affections drive us in our relationship with Christ, carrying the gospel, but affections also drive the way we relate together as a ministry team. 
very important part of the gospel. Hearts, hearts, hearts. Not just insights, principles, theological concepts. Hearts. Well, lost my page. Uh, Verse uh, 9 is where we're at. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be uh, pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul shares how he's praying for the church at Philippi. And we won't be able to spend much time on this, but I want to encourage you to use Paul's prayers of intercession as a model for your ministry of uh, intercession. As we pray for our marriage partner, our children, our parents, those that God's given to us in ministry, our pastors, leaders, how do we pray for them? So often our prayers go a little further than God, please bless so-and-so. Please provide for so-and-so. Please heal. Please protect. Paul's prayers are so specific. We see it here. We see it a little more in Colossians 1. We see it most fully in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's prayers are so insightful, so specific for the people that he loves, that he's serving. I think the reason is, I think Paul prayed about praying. Rather than just assuming that he knew what God wanted to do in the midst of this people that he loved, I think he spent a lot of time with the Lord saying, God, would you give me the grace to see these people through your eyes? What, what are you doing among them? What is it that you desire to do among them? How can I participate with you in that? And then Paul brought those very specific things in prayers of intercession before the Lord. So use Paul's prayers of intercession as your model as you pray for your family, your leaders, ministries, those that God's given to you to serve. Well, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are far more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, why does Paul say this in his Philippian letter? Well, the brothers and sisters in Philippi are confused about what God's doing. And what he's not doing. I think most of you have walked with the Lord long enough that there are times when you just have no clue at all why God isn't doing what you think he ought to do. Why is he doing what he's doing? Christian life can be very confusing. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. That's what the brothers and sisters in Philippi are battling with. Doesn't God want the gospel to be advanced? Doesn't he want churches to be planted? Doesn't doesn't he desire leaders to be raised up for these churches? Why is the primary spokesman for the gospel in prison? 
Paul was always the one out there on the front lines advancing the work of the kingdom. Not only preaching, but establishing churches, training leaders. It makes no sense at all that he's set aside and in prison. And you notice he says, well, others are out there preaching the word. And you might remember in his last letter, 2 Timothy, he writes from prison to his son in the faith, he reminds Timothy, I might be bound, but the word of God is not bound. And so God's work is not limited at all by what Paul's experiencing as he's chained between these prison guards in that Roman prison. He says, what God is doing has actually been designed to further the gospel, not to limit the gospel. In fact, turn over a page or so to chapter 4. Look at how Paul closes his letter. We see his sense of humor and God's as well. Verse 21 in chapter 4, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So even in Caesar's own house are those who have come to Christ as the word of God is being preached while Paul is in prison. And of course, what makes this so fun is to remember who Caesar is. It's Nero. Nero hated the gospel. He took it as his life purpose to erase the name of Jesus from the face of the earth. What did God say to Nero? Well, you're confused about your identity, Nero, because I've named you as the chairman of the committee for the evangelization of the Roman Empire. Just like Pharaoh, Nero was God's tool for God's purposes and his glory. So... The work of God was not limited at all by Paul's imprisonment. It was advanced because of the power of the gospel. Well, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So while Paul was in prison, others preaching the gospel, some of that preaching was quite poor. We might say bad preaching. Some of us poor motives. People just trying to advance themselves. Some of it was even aimed at hurting the Apostle Paul. People seeing an opportunity to advance themselves at Paul's expense. How's Paul respond? Hey, whatever. I'm glad that Jesus is being preached. On my first trip to Moscow, I was able to preach in the Central Baptist Church in that great city. And after the worship in the morning, some ladies were preparing a lunch for us. I was just walking around the church waiting. And I remembered that Billy Graham had preached in that very same church when he first went as a preacher to Moscow. 
As you know, he had prayed for years that God would allow him to preach the gospel in a communist country. And uh, finally, through much interaction, and it was political as well as uh, ministry opportunity. So there was a great press corps accompanying the Apostle Paul, uh, or Apostle Paul, Billy Graham on that trip. And as you know, sometimes the press can be rather cynical. And so they were saying together again and again, doesn't Billy Graham realize that he's being used for the communists for their purposes on this trip? They're taking advantage of him. He just seems to be oblivious. And so the speculations went on and on. And, uh, in fact, there was a press conference after that morning when he preached in the Central Baptist Church. And, again, the press was just as cynical as ever. And they're saying things like, the people that Billy Graham wanted to preach to weren't even in the church. The people who are normally there on Sunday morning, they weren't allowed to go to worship. The church was filled with KGB agents. The church was filled with members of the Communist Party. And Billy Graham said, it doesn't matter who's in the church, whether it's KGB agents or Communist Party members or peasants. The gospel is powerful enough to change anyone's life. And Billy Graham's legacy has been not only in his personal integrity in the ministry, but his commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Paul's confidence was in the gospel. I'm just glad that the gospel is being proclaimed. Well then, still in uh, verse 18, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed about, uh, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again it is probable that Paul never did visit the church at Philippi again. He did give his life at Nero's sword in that Roman prison. But he gives this testimony to the church at Philippi, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Lord Jesus was the beginning and the end and everything in between, not only in Paul's work, but in his heart. And then he shares this 
truth that he opens up a little more in his second Corinthian letter in chapter 5. Here he talks about his desire to be with Christ. There in Second Corinthians, he uses the words groaning and longing. What happened with Paul on that Damascus road? He was not only converted from being that self-righteous Pharisee to a follower of the Lord Jesus, but something had happened in his heart. The passions of his soul were ignited, inflamed in his love, his relationship with the Lord Jesus. This love relationship was growing so strong in Paul's heart, he desired more and more to be in the presence of the one that he loved the most. And yet he's trapped in this body that's designed for time. That's why you remember at 2 Corinthians, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He wants to be in the presence of the one he loves, but he's trapped in this physical, earthly body. He says, my my desire is to be with Christ. It makes sense for me to stay here and care for you, minister to you longer, but my desire is to be with Christ. Paul was passionate about the gospel. From that Damascus Road experience, every moment, every desire, every bit of strength, all of his heart, every opportunity was focused on the gospel. He was passionate about the gospel because he was passionate about Jesus. We know we're struggling in our churches to move people to the gospel with their mouths speaking the witness of the gospel with their finances their strength their time their resources we're having a great difficulty moving toward moving people toward missions and evangelism in fact i've often thought and i know this from my own church this hopefully isn't true about your church But I've often thought, if you want to make sure that you're going to have the smallest meeting in the entire year's calendar in your church, all you need to do is call a prayer meeting for missions. You can be confident only a handful of people will show up. Why do we struggle so with the gospel? Whether it's sharing our faith or involvement in missions, Serving in an area of the church. Why do we struggle so? What do we need? Do we need better tools? Better plans? More organization of the church facilities and calendar around the gospel? Maybe some of that's true. But the greater reality is we will only become passionate about the gospel when we are passionate about Jesus. Paul continues when he talks about this truth of his desire to be with the Lord in 2 Corinthians by talking about how God's entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. You might remember how he begins that particular section 
by saying the love of Christ compels us. Nothing less than that is ever going to get us there. Not a better program, not a more effective tool, not memorizing this or that, unless, unless our hearts have been captured by a love for the Lord Jesus, a desire, a desire to please him. It's not going to happen. So he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's hard for us to think about dying as gain, isn't it? I struggled with that last summer as I was near death with a battle with pulmonary emboli. Doctor got my attention well when he said, you need to tell me what you want me to do for you. It's a confusing question. I want you to use your skills to heal me, of course. No, no, it's not what he's talking about. How far should I go in trying to resuscitate you? And then when he said, if you make it the next 24 hours, you have a chance. I love my wife. I love my work. Love my sons. Love the ministry. But it was a difficult thing to face. You know, to die is gain. Only happens when there's a love relationship where the passions of your soul are inflamed toward Jesus. It's the only way to get there. Well, let's continue. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And uh, our next session, the morning worship time, is going to be focused on what that verse is talking about. What does that look like? How does God get us there? How does that affect ministry in the church and around the world? Verse 28. So he talks about not only standing side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel, but not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Don't be frightened by your opponents. This is a fascinating statement in this letter. I loved China. I had prayed for years that God would allow me to minister in China. I've been so deeply affected by Hudson Taylor's books, by Watchman Nee's books. I love China from a distance. And in fact, the first time I was able to visit China, even as the, the plane crossed over into Chinese airspace, I was just filled with a sense of great joy. I came home from that trip, and I said to Karen, I love China. I could spend the rest of my life in China. She said, you'll be very lonely. <laughs> a fellow by the name of Angus Kinnear, wrote a biography of Watchman Nee. And toward the end of this biography, he talks about a late-night meeting between the Prime Minister, Premier Cho Enlai, 
and the leaders of the Chinese Christian Church. In his night-long meeting with the founders of the Chinese Christian three-self-patriotic movement, Prime Minister Chou Enlai made clear the party's position on freedom of Christian witness. We're going to let you go on trying to convert people, provided you also continue with your social services. Interesting statement. If you would visit a church in China today, whether it was a registered uh, three-self church or whether it was a house church, uh, and the house churches actually make up about two-thirds to three-quarters of the churches in China. But in either place, you might hear the pastor, one of the leaders say, if there's ever a need in the community, if there's ever a crisis or an opportunity to serve, we need to be the first ones there. Now, they're motivated with genuine concern and compassion to help people. They also want to prove to the government they're good Chinese citizens, they want to, there's no, no threat to the government from the Christian churches. They want to be good citizens. So social services are a big part of it. So we're going to let you go on trying to convert people, provided you also continue with your social services. After all, we both believe that truth will prevail. We think your beliefs untrue and false, Therefore, if we are right, the people will reject them and your church will decay. If you are right, then the people will believe you. But as we are sure that you are wrong, we are prepared for that risk. Very bad bet that Cho and Lai made that night. What has happened in China? Communism has decayed and the church has flourished. Greatest revival in history since the first century in China. Probably more believers in China than any other country in the world. And very soon, China will probably become the number one missionary-sending nation in the whole world. So Paul says, don't be frightened by your opponents. Can you visualize him in that Roman prison? Chained between two prison guards. (laughs) What's going on? These were the Praetorian guards, Caesar's best soldiers. Every four hours, the guard was chained. So the truth is, if Paul's chained chained to the guards, they're also chained to him. Every four hours, two new guards would be brought in and chained to the apostle Paul. What's he talking about during those four hours? He's talking about this Lord that he loves with all of his heart. He's talking about this gospel that transforms people, sets them free, gives them life. And that gospel is flourishing, flourishing around the world. Don't be frightened by your opponents. God is at work. His purposes cannot be stopped. To be honest, I, 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 I can't understand the hand-wringing that's going on today. What's going on in our culture? It's so set against us. How are we going to survive? How are we going to continue to minister the gospel here and around the world? There are obstacles to the gospel everywhere. I was just sharing with the mission team last night our 
our staff in China feel that they might have two more years and not be able to get back into China again. So, God will find another way. His purposes will not be stopped. And whether it's a political environment here in the States or around the world, people hate the gospel in many places we're serving. We're probably working in 25 of the most persecuted places in the world. But God won't. Don't be frightened by your opponents. We have every reason to be the most optimistic, confident people in the entire world. We know when time merges with eternity again, everything in the heart of our God to be fulfilled in time will have been fulfilled. We know that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. We know that Jesus will have built his church and the gates of hell will not have prevailed against it. And we know that when we're there in the throne room, we'll be there with those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And it's with that confidence and the passionate love for Jesus that has consumed our hearts, we carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I can't see the clock in the back because of the light. We're doing, we finish at 10. Maybe we'll even have time for a question or two. So, Paul says to the church at Philippi and to you and me, we have two calls in the gospel. One is to believe, and the other is to suffer for his sake. Isn't this an honest gospel? There is a gospel designed for a make-believe world, you know, and we fight it everywhere we're working around the world. It's called the prosperity gospel. You come to Jesus, and he will keep you healthy. He will make you wealthy. What are your dreams? You bring them to God, and he will fulfill them. We take suffering out of the gospel. But we have two calls, to believe and to suffer for his sake. Why this strange design, we do not understand. But God has designed ministry in a way that the gospel is carried to the world through the sufferings of his people. Just the way it is. I'd wanted to go to Nepal because I wanted to meet Pastor Tam Rai. I was not able to be there the first training but my coworker Craig was there, and the day that the training was going to begin, they were still waiting for one pastor to join them. And so that morning, Craig was walking on the road uh, in front of the place where they were meeting. He saw a man walking down the road and toward the meeting place, and he said, I wonder if that's the pastor we've been waiting for. And it was Pastor Tam Rye. 
he was very quiet the first several days of the training as they were studying the book of Jonah together. And uh, then the second day, Craig had an opportunity to talk with him through an interpreter. And Pastor Tam said, uh, I decided last week to leave the ministry. I was already signed up for this week of training, and so I thought, well, before I leave, I'll, I'll, I'll come for this week of training. Pastor Tam Rye had a large family, many children. Education is very, very expensive in Nepal, and especially university training. And several of his children were approaching the age of university time. His church wasn't able to pay him much money. And he also had a ministry of encouraging other pastors, and he would travel to do that. The church wasn't able to pay much of that expense either, and so much of it Pastor Tam covered out of his own funds. He said, last week as I was praying, I I finally came to the place where I, I, I need to take care of my family. I need to get a job. And then toward the end of the week, he said, how can I be another reluctant prophet and run away? (laughs) I can't quit. What a place to be in. Couldn't continue because of the financial needs and pressure. Couldn't leave because of the call of the gospel. I was able to go a couple of years later and meet Pastor Tam Rye, and then they did invite me back for the graduation time with them. And uh, part of our time when we meet together is hearing reports. Ours is a ministry of mentoring and also multiplying. So the training that we're bringing to pastors, they will bring to another group of pastors as well as to their own church. And so Pastor Tam Rai was giving his report on his ministry between the six months since they had been together. And he told us how he had walked four days, 14 hours a day, over the foothills of the Himalayas to reach his second-generation training team. I, I was so struck I couldn't speak for the rest of the evening. Our problem in that environment is not so much that we don't feel worthy to be their teacher. Often we hardly feel worthy to even be in their presence. I had the opportunity then to talk extensively with Pastor Tam Wright toward the end of the week. Amazing reality, his circumstances hadn't changed one bit. Still struggling with the finances, still struggling to care for his family. But I said to him, why do you do this? He said one thing, because he's worth it. That's Paul's message to the church at Philippi. How is he going to capture the hearts of his brothers and sisters in Philippi? For the gospel is through the surpassing worthiness of Jesus. We're going to get to that in our afternoon session. It's interesting as we read this first chapter, Paul did not see his imprisonment as a punishment for preaching the gospel. 
he saw his imprisonment as a platform for preaching the gospel. Do you realize that God has been building a platform in your life to preach the gospel? We know that we were chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world so that we would be his. We know that he weaved us in our mother's womb so we would be just the person he was designing us to be. We know that every day of our lives, God has been using the circumstances, the situations, the failures, the successes, relationships to make us more and more like himself. God has been designing us for his servant as we proclaim the gospel. And now God's put us in a unique place. He's given us a platform from which to preach. No one in the world shares that platform. It's where we go to school, and it's where we work. It's in our neighborhood. It's with our circle of friends. It's our relatives. God's not only been building us as his servant to proclaim the gospel, he's put us in a unique situation that no one else shares to proclaim this gospel. And don't you love Paul's language as he introduces this concept to his brothers and sisters in Philippi? He doesn't say, so look for every opportunity you can to witness. Look for where you work, you know, that opportunity to share Jesus with your co-workers or your neighbors. Or when your family gathers together for the holidays, look for that open door to mention the name of Jesus. All important. He's using different languages, isn't he? It, it's a higher calling. He's talking about confirming the gospel, defending the gospel. How do we confirm the gospel? Well, that's what this letter is about. We confirm the gospel as the attitudes of the Lord Jesus are seen in our hearts as his followers. We confirm the gospel as our relationships with our brothers and sisters in our church reflect the heart of our God. We confirm the gospel when our priorities and passions flow from the love of the Lord Jesus for us and our response love to him. We confirm the gospel in our faithfulness in our marriage. High calling, defending, and confirming the gospel. And that promise at the beginning of this letter, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of the Lord Jesus. Of course it's an encouragement when we struggle. It's more than that. What's the good work Paul's talking about in the context of this letter? What's the great work that God's doing in the church at Philippi and in you and me? It's orienting everything we are and everything we have around the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's our hope that this day, spend time together in God's word, that this will be a strong encouragement 
to that process in your heart. God orienting all that you are, all that you have, around the gospel of his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have brought this great gospel to us as your children. We know that we were not seeking you when you found us. We were not sincere and wanting to please you. We were your enemies when Christ died for us. We were slaves of sin. And yet your great mercy, the fullness of your grace, because of your favor, flowed upon us, and we have been changed. Father, we thank you. We love you. And today we pray that as we spend this time together in this letter that you so wonderfully kept for us from Paul to his brothers and sisters in Philippi, that you capture our hearts more and more for this gospel as you did with them in their giving, serving, preaching, their hearts toward each other. Father, thank you that you've made us your own. Would you make this gospel our own as well? In Jesus' name, amen.